Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and this week we'll be bringing you a special episode, a recording of a panel from this year's Arbitration Institute. The panel is entitled The Supreme Court and Arbitration, an insider's view. This panel was presented on Thursday, May 16th by Andrew J. Pincus of Meyer Brown and Deepak Gupta of Gupta Wessler PLLC. Those two leading Supreme Court practitioners appeared in eight precedent-setting arbitral cases. They will share their insights from those arguments and offer an unparalleled view of the Supreme Court's approach to resolving disputes over the law of arbitration. Without further ado, here's Andrew and Deepak. So Deepak Gupta, who is immediately on my right, uh, started his career as a public interest lawyer uh, with the public interest with the public citizen uh, litigation group. Uh, my career also started as a public interest lawyer, and so we, we have kind of a connection and a bond there. Um, he was also hired by Elizabeth Warren uh, to be a senior uh, litigation counsel with the newly formed. Um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He has become one of the leading uh, thought leaders uh, in opposition to mandatory arbitration. I know he'll call it forced arbitration, I suspect. <laughs> He's teaching a seminar at Harvard Law School on forced arbitration, I think. Is it this semester or the coming semester? Uh, the coming semester. Coming semester. And they, they actually let me call it forced arbitration, so that's the name in the catalog. <laughs> okay. And uh, he has been described as one of the emerging giants of the Appellate and Supreme Court Bar. So welcome. So next to him is Andy Pincus. Uh, Andy is actually a giant of the Supreme Court Bar. Um, Andy has uh, uh, appeared and argued uh, 29 cases in the United States Supreme Court. That's 28 more than me. Uh, and so I, I, I respect you uh, for that. I know what it was like from my one case. Um, they were both adversaries uh, in the important uh, Concepcion case, but you will see they are very cordial, they are friends, and there will be a lot of civil discourse going on uh, here today despite their, their disagreement. Um, Andy has been recognized in, in chambers in band, band one. I had to call my wife to find out what that meant, and because uh, she is in band two, and when I told her that you were in band one, she said, oh my God. Chambers, of course, is the premier organization that ranks lawyers, and to be in band one means that you are one of the most exceptional and highly ranked lawyers in America. And, and, in, and Chambers described uh, Andy as one of the finest appellate lawyers in the United States. Uh, he had high-ranking roles uh, in the Department of Justice. He was general counsel of the Department of Commerce. Uh, he uh, does an amazing amount of pro bono work, and I suspect that's one of the areas of your respect for him uh, in immigration and other areas and, and helps uh, young lawyers understand and prepare to support uh, important decisions in the United States Supreme Court. So this is, I hope, an amazing discussion, and we're going to invite your questions here uh, very, very soon. So let's just start and maybe explain, and I'll start with, with you, Andy, I asked you this, how you got into this area of defending uh, forced arbitration. 
Uh, I just defend arbitration. <laughs> um, colleagues of mine at Mayor, uh, Singular Wireless was before it was bought by AT&T, so this was years and years ago, uh, was a Mayor Brown client. And it wanted to uh, design a dispute resolution system for disputes with its customers that was fair and that was going to be both accessible to customers uh, and also sort of take, no offense to the practicing lawyers who are here, take expense out of the sort of litigation process and put more of it into settling disputes with its customers because they would rather give money to their customers than the lawyers said. Uh, so that process uh, started with a recognition that you know the first question was to design a process that would be acceptable given that these are form contracts like the bazillions of form contracts that we all have to enter into every week, uh, they would be subject to, in the first instance, state law unconscionability regimes. And so the question was, how do you design a process that was fair? So it went through a number of iterations, got challenged, court said things, the clause got changed, and eventually it got to the sort of state that it was when it reached the Supreme Court. Uh, the big challenge after you know questions about contract <coughs> proof of contract formation and clear disclosures was what do you do uh, if you have a class waiver in your arbitration agreement? How do you uh, deal with the problem that there will be small claims that affect a lot of people, and if they can't bring them, then that's an unfairness. And so what uh, Singular and then AT and T decided to do was to construct a system that would sort of put a lot of give incentives to customers to bring small claims, no matter how small, if they felt they were wronged, and give the company an incentive to settle claims unless uh, they were really way out there and close to frivolous. So it constructed this clause that said, there'll be a mediation process before you file your arbitration, um, and the company would have a chance to offer a settlement if the Consumer settled, okay, fine, that was the end of the dispute. The just consumer rejected the settlement, went ahead into arbitration, and the arbitrator awarded a penny more than the company had offered, then the company would pay uh, a bonus. And at the time of, 18, uh, of the Supreme Court case, I think it was $5,000 in attorney's fees. So even if the claim was for $20, if you thought you were right and you pursued it, you'd get $5,000, you'd get your attorney's fees paid. Now it's $10,000 double attorney's fees, and any expert witness costs. Hang on, I don't want you to lobby about, about how good that, that is. So I, but that, my, was the, that was the theory. Well, and, my question, <clears throat> but my question really is, was that, is that how you got into this? Yeah, so I got into yeah. this because yeah. California had adopted a rule called Discover Bank that said, we don't really care what's in your clause if you don't allow for class proceedings, either class arbitration or class actions in court, your clause is unconscionable and therefore invalid. And so the question was, uh, so that, that decision, as a matter of California law, got applied to uh, a case uh, involving AT&T in federal court. And they were your client. And they were our client, singular okay. AT&T. Right. And, and the Ninth Circuit said, we have to apply this rule of California law. And by the way, the FAA doesn't preempt it. And so I got involved because then the question was, could we take this claim to the Supreme Court 
of FAA preemption. All right, good. And how did you get into this? So, so I just, before I answer the, the question, I just want to point out how, how good Andy is yeah. and what he does. No, he, he answered a so, question so, that I didn't ask. Exactly, yeah, which, is, one, which yeah. is what we, you know, we tried to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he also, look at how reasonable he made it. He described a corporate strategy. He used arbitration clauses to kill class actions through the fine print of contracts so that all of these claims would disappear. And he made it sound eminently reasonable. And that, that's, that's why they paid him. Um, so I also got uh, into this issue uh, through the same litigation that Andy did. Uh, when I joined uh, Public Citizen, I started uh, something we called the Consumer Justice Project. And the idea was to work with lawyers uh, all around the country on cutting edge appellate issues that were going to affect consumer justice. And I remember I wrote a memo um, to describe, an overly ambitious memo to describe to the leaders of the organization what the project would do. And I had identified this issue, um, the very legal issue Andy just described, which is, you know, does the Federal Arbitration Act preempt a state unconscionability law to the extent that it concludes that a class action ban is unconscionable? And it, it was pretty evident that that was a, an issue that was percolating up in the lower courts and would eventually reach uh, the Supreme Court. So I started tracking the cases around the country where this was going on and, and, and talking to the lawyers. Um, and actually, if you'll recall, it was the, 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 there were um, class actions that were joined together against multiple cell phone companies, right? And um, the first cert petition was not um, Andy's cert petition. It was actually by a dean of the Supreme Court bar, Carter Phillips, who represented, um, who was his client? It wasn't, uh, it was T-Mobile, right, it was T-Mobile. And so they, they petitioned the Supreme Court, um, and they had um, a, 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 an arbitration clause that didn't have the bells and whistles that, that Andy was describing, which I think, frankly, was just a marketing gimmick for the Supreme Court. The end was to kill all the claims, regardless. But what Andy, Andy and his team did was really unusual. Yes. They filed a, a brief, uh, I guess you called it an amicus brief, for AT&T um, in opposition to Carter's, uh, to T-Mobile's petition. And they said, uh, that's a, a first generation arbitration clause. AT&T has a, a third generation arbitration clause. <laughs> has all these bells and whistles, so wait for that case. Um, and I was opposing the the cert petition in the first case, and then I also opposed, uh, unsuccessfully opposed Andy's petition. And that's how we got into this and, and how we yeah, became good friends well, well. Let me ask you, because the, the group here really wants your, your, both of your insights into Supreme Court practice. So I'll start with you, Deepak, and then Andy. And, and my next question is, how, how, how has this happened? What, what is your insight now, looking back over the last 20 years as the Supreme Court has has made all of these changes in, in arbitration. How how do, how do you how do you assess that now with the benefit of, of hindsight looking at these decisions? Yeah. So so it's a really big question. So you know, apologize if I if I'm bringing the lens back too far. But if you go back to 1925, when the the Federal Arbitration Act was enacted, it's pretty evident if you look at the legislative history that uh, the the statute it was uncontroversial when it was passed. It was passed unanimously by Congress. <laughs> And it was designed to facilitate um, arbitration for those who chose it, for, um, for people who had the ability to enter voluntarily into a contractual relationship and decide amongst themselves that they wanted to exit the litigation system 
because it was you know, more cost effective and, and they would pick arbitrators that knew their business and, and it would make a lot of sense for the economy. And I have no objection to that, and none of my colleagues do. That makes perfect sense. I think those of you who work in the arbitration field are doing great work to facilitate dispute resolution. Um, but the, the concern was raised at that time that uh, the Federal Arbitration Act might be used as a vehicle to, uh, to foist it on the little guy um, and, um, and kill workers' claims or consumers' claims. And, and Congress had Section 1 of the Federal Arbitration Act says, you know, this uh, act is not going to apply to any class of workers, right? Um, and the, the ar this architect of the legislation said this is not going to be used to, for mass contracting. And for most of the act's history, that was true. Um, it, was, it only applied to commercial agreements, as you know, for, uh, for until, until quite recently. It didn't apply even to federal statutory claims. Uh, it, it didn't apply in state court. So all of that is an innovation of the last few decades. Um, and it started in the 80s and the 90s. Scholars have various accounts for this, but I think part of it is um, Part of it was driven by docket pressure, a perception that the courts were overloaded. Um, part of it was driven by, uh, I think, a genuine belief that this is a, a procedural innovation that made sense, that, that, that it would be good for, um, good for the world if, if claims were channeled into arbitration. And the liberal justices were, were on board. Uh, it, it That's was, one of the most interesting things. Initially. Was not my, my impression is these changes occurred incrementally, exactly. not in one sweeping way, but it was an I think that's change. right. Is that a fair characterization? That's right. But if you look at, you know, Justice O'Connor said, uh, is, I think it was the late 80s, the, the court is starting to build an edifice of its own creation. This bears no resemblance to congressional intent. So there, there were justices of all ideological persuasions who were starting to call out um, this construction of a new statute by the court that, that was nothing like the, the, the statute Congress created. Is that a, is that a fair character? <coughs> I'm not sure I'm going to buy the construction of a new statute by the court, yeah. but, but I think the way the Supreme yeah. Court does things often is in, I mean, it has to work incrementally because yeah. it gets issues. Sometimes there are justices that have a, sort of a direction where they want to move the law and they can do that pretty quickly. You know, you've maybe seen that in an area of the law that Deepak and I probably agree on in terms of the treatment of labor unions in recent years. Uh, that was sort of an intentional project, I think. But if you look at this, I, there really were two or three streams that came together. There was a, a question about whether claims could be non-arbitrable. And early Supreme Court decisions had basically said, well, these federal statutes are so important. You know, These claims can't be you know, handled by arbitrators. Only wonderful judges can do that. And I think maybe legitimately, uh, the liberal across the court, people thought, well, this is exactly what the FAA was designed to prevent, this sort of discrimination against arbitration, <laughs> the idea arbitrators couldn't handle <coughs> disputes. So those pre precedents that sort of put claims off limits fell, both with respect to federal claims and then with respect to state claims. And then there were some state procedural rules that even Justice Ginsburg wrote opinions for the court saying, well, these procedural rules seem to burden arbitration and don't make a lot of sense in this particular context. And sort of once all of those things, you know, it's like building a pearl. Once all things accrete, you know, you have something that uh, is a body of law that when you put it together, you know, seemed to lead well, to other she results. Wrote Doctors Associates, 
<clears throat> that really was right. like a critical case that sort of took us down this direction about preemption of Doctors Associates and the one about uh, Hollywood uh, entertainment yeah, agents. Yeah, Preston which I, versus Preston Ferrer. Versus Ferrer. Yeah. But those cases, okay, so again, he makes it all sound so reasonable, but is that, <laughs> does that sound like an account to you of statutory interpretation? It sounds like common law adjudication. Like that's that's fine maybe for, you know, uh, for general common law, tort law, it's perhaps fine as an account of, of common law constitutionalism, but it's not how we think of what the court is supposed to be doing when it's interpreting a statute enacted by Congress. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, um, the, the Ginsburg opinions, those, were, those are premised on an idea that this statute is a non-discrimination principle, that it is a kind of equal protection clause for arbitration, so long as the, the state law rule isn't discriminating against arbitration, um, it's permissible, and, it, and the, the court left a lot of room for state law because, after all, contract law is supposed to be state law. And, and I think there was, um, you know, this was not an issue um, that was among um, the, the small number of issues on which the court is, is really, really hotly divided until fairly recently. Um, I think really until <coughs> the cases that involve aggregation more than they do arbitration. They seem like they're cases about arbitration, but really arbitration is being used as a mechanism to prevent uh, people from banding together to assert their claims as a group. And, and that is really where you started to see the, the court, I think, divide very, very sharply. So it started with Stolt-Nielsen, um, which really laid the groundwork uh, for um, AT&T versus Concepcion, and then American Express versus Italian Colors. And, and most recently, Epic Systems and, and Lamps Plus. And then you see, I think, because of the, um, the heated contestation of this question about how arbitration meets the class device, you then see some s spillover, I think, perhaps into other. Although, less, I was thinking about this on the train. I mean, less, if you take the sort of class cases out of the picture yeah. and you look at recent cases like DirecTV and Kindred and Marmette. They're pretty much, there, there are some dissents, but it's not the sort of sharp chasm that you have yeah. in the class cases, even now. Well, I was very worried when DirecTV came out, because <clears throat> you know, there's a case where I, I think um, you have to separate out the, the battle over these issues from the court's uh, respect for precedent. Once, once the court has sort of decided a case, and there's a perception that lower courts are uh, just uh, circumventing the precedent, Justices like you know Justice Kagan are going to line up in favor of the precedent. Um, yeah, and Justice Breyer, who wrote the and Justice Breyer as well, case. right? Um, so, but I was worried um, because I thought I thought okay, well the liberals have given up. <laughs> um, Doesn't look so, that way, and it's clearly not true. I mean, from the last two terms, if you've read, um, you know, I, I think maybe Justice Kagan's dissent. Dissents are the best ones to read, but, they, but they're, they're, the liberals obviously have not given up on this issue. We have, we have two new judges, Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice Kavanaugh, and uh, I, I think there are perceptions about where they're going to align on these issues, but, but you've, you've studied this, and maybe Andy will start with you. Where, where, where do you see them going on, on arbitration issues? Well, they've, they've been supportive of arbitration. I think it's interesting, though, their questions at oral argument. Um, so Lamps Plus and the Shine case were argued on the same day. And uh, I thought it was interesting that Justice Kavanaugh, in particular, was 
asking questions that you sometimes don't hear in cases involving the Federal Arbitration Act, you know, where's the statutory language that supports this particular result? Um, because there is this body of precedent that has sort of told you sort of what, what various provisions of the statute mean. And it seemed as if he, his, his, what he was getting at in his questions, at least, was if, we've, if the court's precedents, <coughs> given the, the special stare decisis respect that statutory precedents get, sort of have left, have made some decisions, he wasn't inclined to say, well, I don't see where this fits into the statute. But I think it will be interesting to see when cases, if cases come up that aren't sort of controlled in large part by precedent, where he goes, because he is someone who's a, a textualist on statutory interpretation, as is Justice Gorsuch. So I think that will be an interesting question. I mean, obviously, if you look at the decisions thus far, they've voted uh, in favor of arbitration, uh, except in the case where uh, the court, and again, interestingly, a statutory interpretation case about the new, scope new of the transportation clause, transportation worker exception. And, you know, the court unanimously rejected sort of broad uh, pro-arbitration reading of the statute. And what's your insight into these new, new judges? So, you know, when, when these two judges were uh, appointed, um, I, like many other people, read all of their decisions that remotely touched on these questions just to read the tea leaves. Any other person who's a Supreme Court nerd the way we yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not regular people. Not everyone. But, but um, and, you know, and talk to people who work with them and try to, get, try to get a sense of where they come from on these issues. Um, Justice Kavanaugh had very little um, experience with these issues. I think it's fair to say, at least as a D.C. Circuit judge, I um, mean, even as a practitioner, although when he was in the White House, um, uh, his portfolio did include um, the, the Bush administration's tort reform agenda. And so he has some familiarity with the issue. That, to that degree, I don't think it is high on his list of issues that he particularly is passionate or cares about. Um, and, uh, and then Justice Gorsuch actually had this was a more interesting um, background. He worked at a law firm, uh, Keller Huber, in D.C., and did both plaintiffs and defense-side work, and, and actually has some experience prosecuting uh, plaintiffs' class actions. Um, so there, there, there was some hope that you know perhaps he would be more even-handed um, on the issue, um, and then did have some experience working with the Federal Arbitration Act as a Tenth Circuit um, um, judge. I agree with Andy that I think they both you know, position themselves as textualists. Of course, as with all people who do that, you have to ask how much of that is a post hoc rationale for a decision that's been reached, and how much it is actually a decision making tool. Um, I think you can ask that of all judges. I think you know, any of us, if we became, if we were put in the in the role of, of you know being a, a Supreme Court justice, we would probably engage in a little bit of decision making in both both categories. Um, but um, you know, I I think for the most part, um, they are they are not going to deviate from the the conservative cons consensus on these issues, and we've seen that. And the best evidence of this is the Epic Systems decision, um, decision by, by Justice Gorsuch, um, continuing this project of concluding that uh, corporations can use the fine print um, to ban class actions, in this case, class actions for all employees, and that the National Labor Relations Act doesn't stand in the way. And I think most court observers expected 
uh, the court to reach that result. So the, the result isn't quite as interesting to me um, as a data point than the way that the opinion is written. And it is, it is an opinion that is, I think, very confident. It doesn't sort of acknowledge that this is a difficult question. Um, and the way that it talks about consent is really interesting to me. I mean, the, this whole, the whole edifice of arbitration, right, Le legitimacy of arbitration uh, derives from the consent of the parties. And that makes perfect sense when, you know, people have actually sort of <coughs> entered into a, a, a voluntary, what would typically regard as a consensual agreement. But these are situations in which, you know, somebody has a low-wage job, um, they accept the job, and maybe they, you know, they get a, an acceptance package that's delivered to them by email, and somewhere buried in, you know, page 103 is a is a class action ban and arbitration clause. Does anyone really think that that those you know fast food workers or workers at a poultry plant are consenting to particular procedural devices that they think are preferable to the litigation system? That's sort of ridiculous. But the but the opinion um, talks that way. It talks uh, about um, consent even in this context as if, as if you know you're choosing something off of the menu at a nice restaurant. Um, so, so you know, <laughs> I, I, and I, I want to be careful that we yeah. don't debate these cases too much. Although, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess just to follow up on your line of thought here, that obviously there's a whole body of law about standard form contracts, and so as long as you view an arbitration provision as comparable to any other provision of a standard form right. contract, you're necessarily led to the same result, and, and so there has to be something different about arbitration than. That other provision, but, but that's another discussion. Yeah. I want and to the FAA would actually yeah. prohibit a yeah. state from treating differently. I do differently. want to talk about the Supreme Court. So mm -hmm. I, I, well, let's talk about Justice Roberts here. In some cases, in other areas of law, he's now become a swing vote. Do you do either of you see him as 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 being in the middle ground, if there is such a thing here on, on arbitration? You're shaking your head. And you're shaking your head. No. Yeah. You know, I think the court right now is in a pretty polarized. State, put aside arbitration. If you follow it at all, you may have seen some recent decisions back and forth about the death penalty in which that have been, you know, for the way Supreme Court justices typically talk in public, you know, I'm not saying anything other observers haven't said, have been pretty pointed. Uh, and so I think, you know, you can see that, that the, the new court post-Justice Kennedy with lots of attention on it, with lots of polarization in society generally, with lots of the issues that the political branches can't resolve coming to the court, I think it's, a, it's an institution that is you know, under some stress right now. So I think uh, the Chief Justice, and maybe to some extent Justice Kavanaugh, are sort of more in the middle than some of the other justices, but I don't know that that means that they're necessarily in the middle on every single issue. And I think you know he has a pretty... <laughs> defined position based on his opinions about what he thinks the FAA means and doesn't mean. And so I wouldn't expect that all of a sudden he's going to be deviating from that any more than I would expect Justice Ginsburg to deviate from her position. I, I, I yeah, largely agree with Andy on this. And you know, one thing about Chief Justice Roberts I know is that um, before the case that, that we argued against each other, AT&T versus Concepcion, um, the chief was in private practice. And there was a case called Zetella versus Discover Bank in which he filed a cert petition for Discover Bank, um, uh, arguing for Federal Arbitration Act preemption <laughs> um, on this <laughs> issue. So, so, and he is someone who, if, if he worked on issues as a private practitioner, he tends to adhere to the same 
positions that he took in practice. So he has some deep experience with the statute, and and I don't I don't think this is an issue on which he is likely to, to, to swing, as it were. I, you know, I, I agree that the court is in a very precarious, uh, polarized position. I mean, every institution in American life feels very polarized right now. And now we At least have, if you live in Washington. Hopefully yeah. things in Philadelphia are not so polarized. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it, I, I, think, I think we all experience this to some degree. And, and the court is now in a, in a position where um, the conservatives are the people appointed by Republican presidents and the, and the liberals are the ones appointed by Democratic presidents. And the Chief Justice and, and Justice Kagan have been the most vocal about their concern that um, the public will see the outcomes of the, the court's decisions as nothing more than an extension of raw um, politics. And I think they're very worried about that. And so I think the Chief in particular, and I think Andy's right, Kavanaugh to some degree, they're looking for ways that they can make the perception other than that. Um, but I'm not sure that arbitration, as much as it, its visibility is, has changed, and I hope we get a chance to talk about the, the politics of it and what's happening in Congress, I, I still don't think, the, and I think the court is right about this, the Chief Justice has a very good antenna. Like, what, what decisions are going to have what effect? He, he watches the, the press, he watches the building across the street, um, and I don't think you know, as much as we all care a lot about the Federal Arbitration Act, I don't think it's it's a, it's among the set of issues that um, that where the court is you know most worried about what people are going to be saying the next day. I want to ask one more question, and and then let's get to that because you both testified at a hearing in Congress yesterday. I do want to ask briefly about Lamps Plus, and and, and to, to some extent, the the outcome could have been predicted insofar as there was no agreement. To, uh, uh, to provide for class arbitration. On the other hand, the court rejected the idea that this state law doctrine of, of an ambiguity really should, should control, much like they rejected the Discover Bank rule in, in AT&T. So my question to you both is, are there any state law doctrines left that may result in uh, finding an ar a class action waiver unenforceable, or, or is it? Is, is there anything at all left? Well, I think you have to sort of separate, as the, the court, I think, tried to do in LAMPS Plus, state law rules that, that sort of impact on what the court has identified as fundamental aspects of arbitration and really that go to this class question. And then state law rules that may have go to other things, like the overall enforceability of the contract under general unconscionability rules. This was an issue a little bit in the hearing, but there are lots of decisions that say, you know, provisions of arbitration agreements that, you know, have the general counsel of the company as the arbitrator or impose limits on the statute of limitations that wouldn't be enforceable in court or limits on uh, discovery. There are a whole series of things that go to sort of the fairness of the arbitral process that I think courts can and do su supervise. Yeah. So I, I don't want to be boring by agreeing with Andy, but but you know I do think that's right. There's there's still going to be state law doctrines that are going to do some work and that and that, that are important. Um, let me just give you two examples of cases that that I you know, recently had that our firm did. One involved um, tribal online online payday lending. So this is payday lending, um, you know, very very high interest rate, hundreds or thousands of percent interest rate loans. They're they're offered on the internet. And then um, the, the lender affiliates with a, an Indian tribe. 
um, and they do that to exit state and federal law. And then they include an arbitration clause, and they say the it's a class banning arbitration clause. The arbitration clause um, will be conducted by some tribal entity that, by the way, doesn't exist, and, and it'll be wholly governed by tribal law. That is a bridge too far. The courts are not going to enforce that. And uh, they might say it's a prospective waiver of federal rights, or they'll say that um, you know, they'll, they'll find a way to, to not enforce those clauses. Um, and another case recently where um, there are letters sent to consumers that threaten them with criminal, criminal prosecution, and it's basically a company that is a debt collector um, that is uh, renting out the prosecutor's letterhead to threaten people. And then it includes an arbitration clause um, that bans um, class actions. Um, the courts are not going to enforce those kinds of clauses. And there are formation, traditional contract law formation um, uh, questions that will still arise and that can be governed by neutral, generally applicable um, state law. Although there's a huge debate, actually, that's going to be taking place next week in the American Law Institute about the um, proposed restatement of consumer contracts, which may change those yeah, essential. One of our committees is working on it. I'm sure we'll have a question yeah. here in a minute. So, so, but anyway, I think I, think I largely uh, agree with Andy on this. So let me shift to Congress. And when we had a preliminary call, I, I said to both of you, gee, uh, really, I don't foresee any changes here. I'm out there in Arizona and Phoenix, and I didn't see anything happening. And you both corrected me. And, and you said, well, don't be so sure of that. So, Andy, you, you testified yesterday as the DPEC, and, and you were suggesting that maybe there could be some congressional action in some areas. Here. I think, you know, there, there are a number. The, the House, House Judiciary. Judiciary. So the House Judiciary Committee, the subcommittee on antitrust, administrative law, and constitutional law, something, had a hearing yesterday. Um, and there were six witnesses, two, the two of us and some other people. Um, look, I think arbitration though not as politically salient as some of the other issues the Supreme Court has handled, is a politically salient issue. It's important to the Democratic Party, which now controls the House. And so even in the last Congress, where Democrats were in the minority, you saw a number of bills seeking to invalidate pre-dispute arbitration clauses either across the board or in particular targeted subject matter areas or whatever. And many of those bills have been reintroduced both in the House and the Senate. And you now have a majority, Democratic majority, that you know I think would be eager in moving those bills through the House. So I think you have to anticipate that there could well be some legislative action in the House. The Senate is obviously a different thing, although the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee is a co has been in the past a co-sponsor of some of those more narrow ones, the broadest ones, uh, and held a hearing himself on uh, arbitration. So we're talking about Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham from yeah. South Carolina, who, who, uh, who held a hearing right, about the problems with forced arbitration and class action bans, and then voted. I think this is interesting. When the, when the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's rule, which, um, which would have erased class action bans in the consumer financial services space, um, went up for a vote. Uh, in Congress. It was uh, repealed under the Congressional Review Act, which is a law that allows Congress to repeal regulations from the, the previous administration. Very, very close vote. Mike Pence had to come down to the Senate to break the tie. And Lindsey Graham voted the right way. He voted in favor of the rule. Well, he voted. Well, I'm told that he actually said during the hearing that he was, he was interested in national standards for arbitration. That's what he said a couple of things. He talked about national standards. He also talked about the need to perhaps, if, if there was going to be something done with respect to arbitration, maybe there also had to be something done with respect to class 
class action abuses. Yeah. If you're going to deal with arbitration, perceived arbitration abuses, maybe you have to do both. So I think no one knows quite what's going to happen. He said a lot of things, but he's not the one driving the agenda on this, right? We're, we're going to go a little bit into the break here, so hopefully everybody will understand. I, and so we're also going to open this up for questions. So uh, we'll keep going here, but anyone who has a question, uh, please uh, raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so aside from class action, I, I always thought that the turning point <coughs> for employment arbitration was Circuit City in 2001. Right. Yes. Said the FAA applies to. It just says that the the statute means the opposite of what it says. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the worst statutory interpretation of decisions in, in Supreme Court history. In an opinion by Justice Breyer, right? Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy. So, I mean, what could be done to undo that? that that's a great question. Yeah, it requires legislation, and that's precisely the legislation that Andy and I were were talking about in Congress yesterday. So there's a there's a bill called the Fair Act. Um, that's the lead bill, um, which would um, uh, end forced arbitration for consumer and worker claims. There are also more targeted bills um, involving sexual harassment. Um, this hearing yesterday, just I think folks might find this interesting. So in addition to me and Andy, uh, Gretchen Carlson, the, the Fox, former Fox News anchor, testified about her experience being, um, she was sexually harassed by Roger Ailes and was subject to Fox News's um, arbitration clause, which kept the, the problem secret. And I think as a result of the Me Too movement, a lot of people are waking up to the fact that these clauses are uh, suppressing um, uh, evidence about sexual harassment so that one woman doesn't know what happened to the woman who works down the hall because that case was confidential. Um, and a lot of people are really up in arms about it. So, so I think that is responsible for some of the movement on this issue. You may have seen that Google workers uh, around the world, Google workers in every time zone, walked out um, uh, last year um, in protest of uh, sexual harassment episodes within the company. The number one demand of those organizers was ending forced arbitration in Google's contracts. And the tech companies have started to act uh, in response to that pressure. Now, that's going to work with, with employees that are very highly educated, in-demand employees. Um, there are also uh, a group of law students at Harvard Law School that have started organizing and have gotten the big law firms to drop these clauses. Um, not going to work if you work in a poultry farm in a factory in Iowa or you work in a fast food restaurant. So, so congressional action, I think, is necessary to reverse um, to reverse Circuit City and and um, and to, um, to to reverse Concepcion. Um, and these other decisions we've been talking about, and, th and that's what's being debated right now in Congress. And it's an extension of the project that um, was, was happening in the, in the last half of the Obama administration, where uh, agencies across the government were starting to limit forced arbitration in various contexts, uh, consumers, workers, uh, nursing homes, uh, for certain farmers that, are, that have unequal bargaining power with large agribusinesses. The Pentagon had rules like this. So, um, so there's been a lot of policy innovation in a very short amount of time. And I think you can, you can feel the issue changing. Yeah, although just to give arbitration, it's sort of yeah, 10 I'm, seconds. Andy, of... I'm going to ask you in a second to talk about the new Chamber of Commerce okay. study, OK? But we have a question here. Yeah. Um, this comes directly from my students that teach this at, at UVA, but it also picks up from the comment you made that arbitration is not going to be the driving wedge issue. But against that, why are there 
Why have there been so many Supreme Court cases on arbitration? There aren't as many on issues we deal with every day, like personal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Why have you guys had so much fun? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been a lot of litigation about the enforceability of arbitration clauses. I think that's one, one reason is there just happen to be conflicts that develop because there's so much litigation in the state and federal courts now about the circumstances in which clauses can be enforced. And so the court you know, is focused on conflicts. I think the court traditionally has also said that certainty of enforceability of contracts is one of the benefits of arbitration. And so if the rules are unclear, that's not really helpful. And so I think it's an area where it feels more of an obligation to clear things up. I think it's also an area where it feels there's been some sort of resistance by the lower courts. Uh, Some of the decisions that the court reviews are pretty clearly just wrong under... uh, and they're the ones often that are unanimous. And I think the court feels that, you know, what it says about the Federal Arbitration Act should go, and lower courts need to not sort of engage in resistance. There's so, the Shine cases, but they're the American Colors cases, too. There's some unanimous and some a lot of five. Right. Well, so, Shine is a case, I think, in the resistance category, where there was also pretty hard to see what was going on. I think Italian Colors was probably a case post-Concepcion, where, you know, the question was, was Concepcion limited to state law claims or did it also apply to federal law claims? And it seemed like a pretty important question to answer. So, so, so I, I, I want to just really quickly, I, I disagree with most of what Andy said, except for the part about resistance and circumvention. So keep in mind, uh, most of these cases, the big cases, there were no conflicts. Even in Concepcion, there was no circuit split, really. Um, so that's whenever that. whenever the court you said there was, but there wasn't. <laughs> no, no, no. But we, we can. Yeah. It you know it's that's water under the bridge, so we can agree there really wasn't a split. And when that happens, when the court grants, when there aren't real splits, it's it's evidence that the court is carrying on a project that it's being quite activist about. And I think, um, you know, just objectively speaking, this is an area that the court has been pretty activist, and that's. They become interested in a project and then they carry it forward. And then Andy's right, they do perceive some circumvention or resistance by the lower courts, lower courts that are outraged at what the court is doing under the statute. And then they have to take those cases. And so arbitration is now in the very small category of issues where the court um, uh, semi-routinely issues summary reversal orders, right? The other categories are qualified immunity, and you know certain death penalty cases, right? And so that shows you it's a it's a small category of cases where the court is policing its precedent, and arbitration is now in that area. And the court has a project, and and they're they have been they've been animated about carrying forward that project. I think the project is largely over though now. I mean they've done so much damage. I'm not sure how much damage there is left for the court to do. And I think the action now switches to Congress and the regulatory agencies. Andy, there's a new study that just came out from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and maybe just summarize the findings, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the premise of the policy debate or or of the legislation in Congress is arbitration is a terrible thing. And so we have to either eliminate pre-dispute arbitration agreements because putting claims in arbitration is really bad. I won't bore you with the entire policy argument that it's wrong. Although one thing that is clearly wrong is that just because there's an arbitration clause, someone can't talk publicly about their claim. They absolutely can, and gag orders are among the things that are invalidated as unconscionable. But we sort of conducted a study to sort of see what are the results. 
let's try and do a study of apples to apples results. And as you may know, the California and I think Maryland require arbitral forums to post uh, information about decided cases. So this study compared uh, employment cases posted uh, on the JAMS and AAA uh, spreadsheets with employment cases decided in federal court uh, from 2014 to 2018. It came up with about 100,000 cases. Sort of no surprise, 75% of both categories were uh, settled. But to me, the very interesting and surprising statistics about the non-settled cases were uh, employee claimants won three times as many cases in arbitration as in court, 32% compared to 11% of the decided cases. And in terms of the awards, uh, both the mean and median awards in arbitration uh, were double the mean and median awards in uh, court. So part of the premise of, of these cases, and it was an interesting in the, in the hearing, we didn't ever hear the results of people's claims when they were arbitrated. It was all about once you get to arbitration, it was like a black hole and no one came out. But if you look at the results, people actually do pretty well. And so I think that undermines, to some extent, the idea that the whole structure of the law right now is some terribly, terribly unfair rigged casino. I think there's a dissent coming. Yeah. OK, I'll try to be quick, because maybe somebody has another question. Um, so just you know, really quickly, because you know, Andy and I could, I could respond to that, and we could debate for, for another hour. It's rarely we're in front of people who care about arbitration. We as people who care about arbitration, you know, as I said at the beginning, I mean, I think when when people voluntarily choose um, alternative dispute resolution, that's a good thing, and you know, it's something should, to be celebrated. And I think that as people who practice in this area and care about this, you should be worried that what the Supreme Court has done and the use of of arbitration clauses as a mechanism to suppress claims. And to, and to end class actions, that that's giving arbitration a bad name. And it's already happening. And, the, and you know, there's a danger that the policy response will overreach. Um, and so I actually think people who care about arbitration and believe that this is a worthwhile method of alternative dispute resolution should speak up and should support uh, efforts to not have arbitration be misused to suppress claims. I think you know, the chamber study interesting. I mean, I think when interest groups have to commission their own studies because they don't like what any of the academics are saying, um, it should tell you something. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, it, it's sort of asking the wrong question um, with respect to consumer employee claims to, to compare, um, you know, um, the outcomes of the individual cases. The, the thing that um, all of the civil rights groups and consumer employee groups are concerned about is the use of arbitration clauses to kill or suppress the claims in the first place. Um, and so that's, that's really what you should be focused on. And that's what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and other the most comprehensive studies have focused on. Um, I, I, you know, I don't deny well, that, that. They, they, they <coughs> use their power, excuse me, to prohibit arbitration, only class. That's right. right that's right, right. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then because that's really what is driving this fight, as I think you can tell from most of the discussion has focused on the use of arbitration clauses to end class actions. Um, so that's, that's really what's driving the fight. And I just think all of the people in this room should be concerned that that gives arbitration unfairly, gives arbitration a bad name. 
Good. Uh, or yeah, there's a it gives more people familiarity with arbitration, yeah. which would another be a question. Good thing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Deepak, uh, be assured that there are people in this room who are concerned about uh, arbitration being given uh, black eye, and the reason for that is because there are those of us who believe you will get a better result right. in arbitration, but the entry into arbitration ought to be voluntary and with consent. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, you say that uh, the battle, I believe it's, you, uh, the battle is done uh, in the courts, at least with respect to the precedent setting by the Supreme Court, and now it moves to Congress. Right. And uh, the tease there from you was that perhaps you have a strategy or you have an approach, a, a, a litigation-driven approach. Uh, be curious to hear more about yeah. sure. about that. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I'm not going to reveal the whole thing to Andy. Because <laughs> this chamber has its own strategy. But, but you know, I do think um, it's obvious that um, the big problem with this issue is if, if you look at all the opinion polling on it, when it's explained to people, when they understand it, they're outraged, they're, they're against it. And um, that's, that's Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Um, over 80% of people in all three categories when they're polled, they don't think that arbitration should be forced on consumers or workers. Um, they think that it should be, as you said, it should be consensual. Um, and they support federal legislation. That's remarkable. Um, you don't get that kind of bipartisan consensus on issues very much these days. The problem, though, is that people aren't aware. They don't really understand the, the problem. I think that's changing. I think it's changing as a result of, you know, as I said, the Me Too movement and other financial scandals. And, and um, it's coming more into the political consciousness. But so part of the strategy on our side is just to make people aware of it. And I think you will start to see. Um, in the, in the presidential election, you will start to see certain candidates talking about this. Some of them already are. Talking about arbitration. They're talking about arbitration, yes. Um, amazingly enough, you will see them talking about it. And, um, and it's already started to happen. Um, and um, so I think, um, you know, very quickly issues like this can get elevated. Um, and you already saw, I mean, one of the, that battle that I described in the Senate where Mike Pence had to, had to break the tie, you know. The Democratic Party is united on this. Some Republicans are crossing over. Um, so the politics has changed just in the short time, in just in a few years, it's changed quite a lot. Um, and then the big discussion on our side is, okay, so you have sexual harassment, you have nursing homes, people's blood boil, um, uh, blood boils when they hear about the stories about nursing home abuse being you know, uh, forced out of court. Um, and so do you take those particular issues, do you have separate bills on those? Um, or do you try to solve the problem at once? Do you do it incrementally? If you do it incrementally, maybe you take some of the most politically salient issues off the table. So the idea is to try to kind of drive all of those together um, in a way that, that drives the larger legislation. And that's no easy trick. I mean, that's what you saw happening in the hearing <clears throat> yesterday. And do you, you want to describe the chamber strategy? <laughs> well, I, look, I think the reality is that, A, just to... If it's about class actions, the CFPB's own study showed that 87% of the class actions they studied gave absent class members nothing. That I was think all class actions filed, right? No. That was yes, class it was filed. class actions filed. Yes, including it, those that were dismissed or, or yeah. yeah. But the question is, can you bring class actions in the ones that were settled? 
if you look at the distribution, we've all gotten the little things in the mail, 4% of the class members pick up the checks. So there are real questions about the value that the class action system brings. And yesterday in the hearing, in fact, one of the witnesses who's on Deepak's side, but is also a friend of ours, said, you know, maybe compensation doesn't work, but there are other benefits to class actions. I think part, if the def, if the defense if the if the attack on arbitration is about how wonderful class actions are, there's a problem because, as Lindsey Graham said, there are real problems with the class action system. But even putting that aside, I, I think the real issue here, as someone who you know, <coughs> try to think about this from a policy perspective, is let's face it: the legal system is not penetrable for most real people for the kinds of claims they have. It just isn't, and so. If you have an arbitration system, which we're getting to, where you can file your claim online, you can sort of state your piece in a telephone conversation or in some kind of an email with attachments, and you get some fair person to decide the claim, that's a lot better than not being able to get any kind of justice at all. And that system is only going to exist if there's pre-dispute arbitration because the companies pay for it, right? I mean, you all probably know that in both employment and consumer cases, the AAA and JAMS cap fees at a very low level, and the companies pay a lot of money, pay the lion's share of all the costs. And so the CIS companies are not going to do that if they also are going to have to pay law firms like Mayor Brown and Pepper Hamilton huge amounts <coughs> to defend them in court. And so it's not as if there's a magical world where there's going to be the choice between arbitration and um, litigation for consumers and employees. It's going to be one or the other. Unfortunately, that's just the real world. He says it like he really believes it. It's, it's impressive. Okay, just one really quick stat, because I know we, we have other questions. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau looked at how many uh, consumers in claims in the, in the uh, companies that they regulate, all the different kinds of consumer financial companies, how many consumers got relief on claims of under $1,000 in a two-year period from AAA? The number was four. Um, for people, not four hundred thousand, four hundred, and so what that shows you is, and, and, and you know, alternatively, you know, tens of millions of people got billions of dollars in cash, sometimes delivered directly into their bank account. When you sue a bank, that's something that's possible um, in in the class action system. So it's really not. It, it, I think that that study uh, exposed a lot of the arguments on the other side as kind of a bad joke. Good. We have another question. Yes, and then we'll go over here and then over to Gary. So go ahead, sir. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in whether there's going to be a Shine 2 case with regard to the clear and unmistakable uh, <laughs> deference to the arbitrators uh, on a competence-competence or jurisdictional issue because they remanded that back to the Fifth Circuit. And the predominant federal court decisions have been if there is adoption of AAA or other rules that provide the, the arbitrators decide jurisdiction, that that is clear and unmistakable evidence. Where do you think that's going? Well, I'll tell you my personal view uh, is that I don't think it's a very pro-consumer or employee, no offense to arbitrators, but I think it's a lot better for claimants, and I think it's actually also better for companies to have gateway issues decided in court. I think it's a fairer process for people uh, who, in a world of uh, form contracts. So if I were a judge, 
I would say that the mere adoption of rules that nobody has read, that people haven't read and probably can't even access, is not enough to confer the, on, the author, on the arbitrator authority to, to decide gateway issues. I'm assuming you'd agree with that. Yeah, I, I do, and I, I don't. I don't think there's currently a split on the issue that no. the, the remanded issue. So I, I, I take that issue. Yeah, so I think you'd, there'd have to be significant percolation in the lower courts before they took the issue, because this is the kind of issue where I think they really have to perceive there to be something approaching a real split before they'll take the case. Good. All I'm right. also surprised, just gratuitously, that more consumer and employee advocates don't make the argument that there's a real unconscionability problem. With delegation. With delegation. Uh, Gary. I had one quick point and then a question. The quick point being, um, for those of you that don't know, the ABA dispute resolution section is working on a resolution relating to consent and arbitration. So a lot of people in the room have worked on that, and you'll be hearing more about it, I think. Good. But my question is, is on a very different topic. You've talked about the embrace of arbitration by the Supreme Court and, and some of the policymaking in Congress. I'm interested, though, in what you think about the state courts, whether there's still some role for them. There are some state courts, you know, California and New Jersey being examples, which have been very consumer and, and employee activist in a way. Is there still room for any action by them, or, or is it too late? Not much. And I think, you know, I've talked to state Supreme Court justices about this, and they're very frustrated because. Um, they feel like the court has, you know, sort of increasingly federalized their role um, to police the fairness of these these contracts, and, and you know they regard the, the decisions like Discover Bank, and, the, and they remember that there were a bunch of decisions like that all around the country, as having been um, legitimate and neutral applications of generally applicable background law. Um, but you know when when they when they issue decisions that are perceived as you know, pro-consumer or pro-employee in this area, they tend to get um, shot down if, the, you know, the, if, the, if somebody on the other side is lucky enough to hire someone like Andy to, to bring the case up there. I mean, there are cases that sneak by, and we have gotten petitions denied that unquestionably had the court taken the case, they would have, they would have reversed. But that's, you know, that's the circumvention thing, right? In terms of actually issuing um, you know, rulings of law that, that are going to stick and not be preempted, I think formation is the one area where they're still able to do that by rigorously policing formation. And remember that there's still a pretty active debate on what the standards are for adhesion contracts in you know, the online world um, with apps. It's surprisingly indeterminate what the, what the law is on, on contract formation for, in those areas. So I think there's work um, for the, the state courts to do there. Um, there's also a live debate about um, uh, what are called public attorney general act cases, cases where um, you know people are kind of standing in for the state and enforcing um, the law, and at least at least for now that that issue hasn't risen to the Supreme Court, and so there's some some ability to innovate at the state level. I, I think, another, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, I think another, <coughs> in addition to sort of policing the unconscionability issues that I was talking about before. You know, I think fees is a, is a very interesting issue, and whether even the fees that the um, AAA has for consumers for small claims, the AT&T clause, for example, says up to $75,000 AT&T will pay the entire fee. And I think for small claims, there's a real question about whether requiring someone to pay whatever just $200 is a fair, is, is unconscionable. I think we're out of time, so uh, this has been an amazing discussion. Thank you both so much.
Thank you for listening. Please tune in in two weeks for another episode of Resolutions.